When I was a teenager into my early 20s, I loved fast cars, and for fun and hopefully profit, I would buy cars, fix them up, and then sell them. There was one particular car that I was always looking to do that with, as I just loved its sleek look and power. It was a 67 to 69 Chevy Camaro RS with hideaway headlights. A few of you will know what I'm talking about. Eventually, I managed to find and buy one in Vancouver, and it needed some work, but I thought this might be the one I would keep. I got it home and cleaned it up and arranged for a paint job on it. I remember the day I brought it home with its new shiny black, so beautiful. I parked it in my parents' two-car garage. Yes, I still lived at home. I mean, how else are you going to afford cars like this at that age? Not that long after, my dad came into my room not looking so happy. He was apologetic. What's up, Dad? Sorry, son, I dinged your car. Ugh. Live long enough, all of us will have these experiences where, you know, we have built something, invested in something, spent effort, time, resources into something, from relationships to business, only to have it go wrong. Genesis 3 is the prime story of this. It is a story of a whole world gone wrong. And I call it the saddest chapter in the Bible. It's not the funnest to preach out of, but it is essential to a foundational understanding of how life works. When things go wrong, you need to know this. To learn, we're going to go look at this, about what this story teaches us about God, what it teaches us about our world, and what our response to that looks like. So, about God. Do you ever wonder how God feels about things? How what you do affects him? I know that when you're a young child, you typically don't think about what the adult might be going through. You don't wonder, are they okay? You have this default that their world is somehow impenetrable with the kind of challenges you have. There are exceptions though, as I have exceptional grandchildren. One of them, two years old, asked me the other day, how was your day, Papa? With empathy. I mean, come on. Recently, I had one of the three-year-olds and I had to look after her for about 30 hours. And in the midst of that, as I was buckling her into her car seat, she, she says to me with appreciation, Papa, you have to do so many things for me. They must have had good parents who were raised by good parents. So let's take this exceptional mindset to think and care about how God must have felt when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, denting the world he made and altering his plan his good plan for it. As we've seen already, Adam's choice set the path for a broken relationship with God and with each other. And as you read on in the story, just in Genesis, there's so much evil and violence and killing. By the time you get to chapter six, it says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Did you get that? It grieved God to his heart. Scripture uses human phraseology to describe God in order for, for, to help us understand him. And God is affected by our actions. Here, God feels man's waywardness deeply. The, the trend that Adam started caused God great pain, so much so that God regrets making the pinnacle of his creation. So let's stop for a moment, think. Why would God even let this be possible? God had great plans for Adam to, to rule the earth under God's authority, to expand the garden into something more beautiful and, and extensive, to fill the earth with good and grow the family, to create civilization and culture, all pointing to the goodness of God. But that's all been damaged. 
Why place a tree in the middle of the garden with the prohibition not to eat from it? Why not just keep them from it? Save the world from the possibility of what is called by many the fall. And therein lies a revelation into the heart of God. God seeks a relationship of love and trust. C.S. Lewis in the classic Mere Christianity, God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong, but I can't. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. In his book, God Never Meant for Us to Die, Mennonite scholar Pierre Gilbert says, the purpose of the tree and its fruit was to provide an opportunity for Adam and Eve to trust God and declare their loyalty to him. God seeks a relationship of trust and love that cannot be coerced. Adam and Eve must be able to choose and have the opportunity to do so. There's a tree in the middle of the garden. And for the Creator, it presents the possibility of joy, but also pain, as God seeks a relationship of love and trust. Genesis 3 also shows us that God holds human beings accountable for their actions. And if Adam's choices are free, then it does make sense for Adam to be held responsible for those choices. Here we are shown that God exercises discipline and judgment when people doubt him and disobey. Elsewhere, we are shown God rewards when people trust him and obey. Genesis 3 verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sometimes consequences are natural. Adam and Eve's sense of shame and guilt. Other consequences are by God's decree. Verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. God speaks to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam how the world will change for them from then on. So about our world. In Genesis 1 and 2, the story is characterized by blessing. In Genesis 3, following the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are now introduced to curse. And that's a word that speaks of frustration and futility, defeat instead of victory, death instead of life. The animal serpent is cursed to crawl on the ground and at odds with humanity. The woman will experience increased pain in the bearing of children. Whereas Adam had sung a song of joy in Eve's arrival, male-female relationships will experience animosity. And work? 
Work will now be difficult for Adam, pictured by farming with a constant battle against thorns and thistles. And lastly, as God had said, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Triggered by Adam and Eve's sin, there is an abrupt change to how things will go. In, in so many ways, Adam and his descendants will live in a world which was not meant to be. That's the world we find ourselves in today, created for so much more, for, for so much better and yearning for that, but in the present, experiencing so much less. And death illustrates this so well, especially when a death happens suddenly, especially when it happens to the young. Doesn't it seem so unnatural? It's like an intruder. We have a sense that we were made to live. We fight against death. It, it brings such a sense of unfairness that it shouldn't be. We may even blame God. And we feel the same way about evil. However you define it, there's, for most of us, a, a sense of morality that is common to civilizations across the ages and continents, and that certain things are wrong and, and, and should not be. But if the serpent is a representative of greater evil, as the New Testament speaks of, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, then life will consist of a consistent battle of good and evil in our world. This enmity between serpent and the woman's seed will be especially true of those who are Christ followers, created for so much more, so much better and yearning for it, but in the present, experiencing so much less. And it's true of our relationships between countries. Never is there world peace, rather wars and rumors of wars. It's the story of the Old Testament, the, the story in Jesus' day. It's the story from one century to another. It is, it is the story today with at least 10 major conflicts between or, or within countries recently or right now. Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Pakistan, Somalia, Nigeria, Colombia, Mexico, Russia, Ukraine. And personal relationships? Well, man and woman who were created to partner are often at odds. About 30% of marriages end in divorce in Canada. And what about the relationships of men and women in general? Hashtag me too. The world is plagued with the common story of men using their power to abuse and manipulate women for self-interest instead of partner with them as it was meant to be. And then there's creation. Huh, how we have felt the impact of a devastating flood and the destruction it has caused, including loss of life. Hear the words of Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Mankind was to be the ruler over the created world in which God placed him. Have dominion and fill the earth. The man's sin not only affected his relationship with God and others, it had a devastating effect on the earth he was to rule. Creation was subjected to futility. It was in bondage to decay. We read in the scripture that God, not Mother Earth, does at times direct certain earthly events to accomplish his purposes. But if a mudslide happens, if the valley floods, does that have to mean God caused it? 
Or rather, is it, is it not just an expected result of an earth that is itself not what it was meant to be? It is groaning, to put it in human terms, waiting for a better day that is to come. It's tendency to disorder, the second law of thermodynamics, a sign that all is not right. All was created good, from relationships to physical creation itself. In Adam's disobedience, all has been damaged, but all is not bad. There is still beauty, and husband and wives do get along. Not every man is an abuser of power, and not every country is at war from without and within, but life is a mixture. We all have dented Camaros. Despite our best efforts in and of ourselves to control, to protect, we can't escape sickness and death, pain and disappointment from work to relationship to the environment we live in. Why am I telling you this? Why is this important? Because expectations are critical. We need to have the right expectation of what life will be like in the present, what we are talking about today with a clear picture of what it will be like in the future. Please come back next week or listen online for that. When we see God, our world, and ourselves rightly, it will drive us to a thoughtful and faithful relationship with God and with one another. Last week, we talked about how impactful our decisions can be in the face of temptation. You can spend years building a life of good reputation and trust, and in a moment of temptation, make a bad choice that overnight destroys what you built. And right up there with that is how we respond to difficulty in times of crisis. The decisions we make then are often just as life-changing. Disillusionment is a faith killer. Expect life to be a mixture. Our family camped a lot when our kids were little. I mean, finances sort of make that necessary, right? But we graduated from that to condos and timeshares from friends, which from our vantage point was way better. I guess we got soft. But one summer, probably 15 years since our last camping uh, expedition, and the kids, you know, all out of the house, my wife and I decided to go camping. And we picked a great location, Cannon Beach, Oregon. And if you haven't been there, you've probably seen a picture of it at some point in your life. It's a beautiful beach, picturesque and popular. Translation, in summertime, it is not easy to get a campsite. Well, our daughters told us of a campground they had previously stayed at there and, and found it quite good. Now, this decision to go camping was a rather spare-of-the-moment decision, probably an indication that we weren't thinking clearly at the time. But I called the recommended place. I told them my daughters and friends had talked about it and, you know, said great things. And I asked if they could have a spot for us. And after a delay, the answer was yes, they could fit us in. Amazing. On the day we arrived and, and checking in, I asked the older lady if our site was a good one. No, she said, rather gruffly. With such short notice, what did you expect? And she was right. It was a small patch. Behind us, quite close, was the path to the washrooms. And beside us on each side was a road which it converged into one, making a rather small triangle fishbowl in which stood enough room for our tent and the picnic table that was there. It was not private. It was not quiet. And it was not conducive to a good sleep. At some point in the night, I said to my wife, wide awake, lying in a sleeping bag, unused for 15 years and smelling like it. This is why we don't camp. Soon after, we left camping, the camping resort, and headed to Portland to stay in a hotel. Long story short, and maybe I'll tell you sometime, they upgraded us to the penthouse suite, complete with dining room, living room, and soaker tub. Not what we expected. What are you expecting in life? God created a beautiful world. 
But Adam sinned and now we live with the presence of bad and we, we can't just run from it to Portland. Thankfully, there's a mixture, camping and condo, good and bad, laughter and pain, gain, but as we have seen so much lately, also loss. How should we respond to all this? You know, as I'm thinking on this this week and, and talking with our pastoral team, there's, there's a Christian practice that we aren't all that familiar with and some of us might be uncomfortable about. And as I was thinking about it, I went, really, Lord? And I'm reading my Bible this morning in my reading plan, and there it is, two, two chapter headings with the word I want to talk about. It's called lament. Lament is the verbal expression to God of our sadness, disappointment, perplexity, or grief. It is the realistic outlet of the pain we feel within us because of the brokenness we experience. And perhaps it is to identify also with the pain and sadness God himself at times feels. Many of the Psalms in the Old Testament are laments, asking heartfelt questions, sometimes wondering if the, about the discrepancies between God's promises and the psalmist's experience. And don't we all feel that sometimes? A.J. Sobota in his book, After Doubt, says, contemporary conservative Christianity has a theological framework for understanding elevation experiences. That's his word for mountaintop moments. We are great at serving people in their success, spiritual growth and victory, but contemporary evangelicalism has less of a framework for valley experiences. We are elevation churches. We have communities where blessing, happiness, and joy are part and parcel of following Jesus, which can be great. But we can only remain part of those communities as long as that remains the trajectory of our lives. The minute we enter a valley, being around all the happy, clappy rejoicing can get really difficult. When my wife died in 2013, I for years could not read Psalm 121. It had been a favorite psalm of mine in which, among other things, it says, he will keep you from all harm. And yet, there she was. My wife's body, a shell of its past, sure looked like harm to me. I had known God and experienced too much of God's goodness and faithfulness to run from him or abandon him, but I had to wrestle. It wasn't so much that I doubted God. It's just that I wanted him to know how deeply I hurt and that in this promise, I didn't understand how it all measured up. Christianity is not a straight line. It is not formulaic, a cookie-cutter pattern in following Jesus. Job's friends thought like that and they were so wrong. You know life is a mixture. And in that mixture, it is good for us to lament not, as N.T. Wright puts it, to complain in accusation against God that maligns his character, but to appeal to God based on his, our confidence in his character. Lament, trusting God. Eventually, most of the laments in the Psalms end there, trusting in God. Again, in his book, After Doubt, we demand that God resolve difficulty or will withhold the gift of our belief. But as Jesus does with Thomas, there is no rushing off. Jesus eventually shows Thomas his scars, but a whole week later. As I've said before, don't live in the midst of your now as if the game is over. God will show himself faithful. So a couple of years ago, just before COVID, I was alone on a hike in the Arizona desert praying when out of nowhere, Psalm 121 came to mind. And that Psalm begins with, I will lift my eyes to the hills. And that is what I was doing. And in the solitude and the beauty, it was like I was faced with a wave of grief and the unreconcilable promise of that Psalm. And then I heard a whisper. 
in my spirit. And why these words, I don't know. It was, I got your back. I got your back, Tim. The presence of God was so tangible, and though I still don't have all the answers on the way or the why of a, of a premature death of the one that I love so deeply, all of that is superseded by the knowing that God is with me and for me, and he is for you. You can lament, trust. The end of Genesis chapter 3 goes like this, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam's, Adam is expelled from the place where he meets with God. Jesus came to restore that. When we have doubts about whether God is for us, the place that we are to look, and I'm always going to take us there, is the cross. There we are reminded that if God so loved us that he gave us his son to make a restored relationship with him possible, whatever else I experience in life will not put his goodness in doubt. Maybe we have placed too much emphasis on stuff and circumstances and control, or like Adam and Eve, the more we don't have, when all along our goal and desire should be in a person. What if we could move our expectation, even demands, from a problem-free life to what is most valuable, a life marked by a close relationship with God? Often our difficulty drives us there. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, we can live to love and please God, and in so doing, experience what the beginning of in Eden was so much about, what Adam's greatest loss was, the presence of God. Lament, trust God, hoping in the future. Even in Adam's expulsion, the seeds of hope for a great future are here. Next week, we're gonna explore that more fully because in the end, Despite all the mixture of the present, God's kingdom was destined to break through, heading towards something inconceivably good. In the end, because of Jesus, there is an undestructible hope we have and are headed towards. The best is yet to come.